Chapter Five of the Ghost of Gear House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Ghost of Gear House by Charles Willing Beale. Chapter Five. Although Mr. Henley had no doubt of the truth of Miss Gear's assertion, the mystery of her life was as real and deeply impressive as ever. Perhaps it was even more so, as seeming more subtle and far-reaching than crime itself, if such a thing were possible. Paul was determined to investigate the secret of the closet stairs, for while Ah Ben's explanation was plausible to a degree, the blank wall and heavy door at the bottom filled him with an uncanny fascination, which grew as he pondered upon them. Exactly what course to pursue he had not decided, but awaited an opportunity to continue his efforts in earnest. There were two serious difficulties to contend with. One was the want of tools, the other the necessity of prosecuting his work in silence. As upon the previous evening, Dorothy and Mr. Henley dined alone, although Ah Ben, appearing just before they had finished, partook of a little dry lettuce and a small cup of coffee. Dorothy, as usual, ate most sparingly, scarcely enough, as Paul remarked, to keep the parrot alive. After dinner they went together into the great hall, where Ah Ben prepared a pipe apiece for himself and his guest. The logs were piled high upon the hearth, and the cheery blaze lit up the old pictures with a shimmering luster, reducing the lamp to a mere spectral ornament. It was the flickering firelight that made the men and women on the walls nod at each other, as perhaps they had done in life. They seated themselves in the spacious old leather-covered pew, Ah Ben and Dorothy upon one side, while Paul sat opposite. The men were soon engaged with their pipes, while Miss Gear had settled herself upon a pile of cushions in the corner nearest the chimney. "'You have been absent from home today, I believe,' said Henley to the old man, by way of opening the conversation, and with the hope of eliciting an answer which would throw some light upon his habits. "'Yes,' Ah Ben replied, blowing a volume of smoke from under his long white mustache. I seldom pass the entire day in this house. There are few things that give me more pleasure than roaming alone through the forest. One seems to come in closer touch with first principles. Nature, Mr. Henley, must be courted to be comprehended. I suppose so, answered Paul, not knowing what else to say, and wondering at the man's odd method of passing the time. A long silence followed after this, only interrupted at intervals by guttural mutterings from the parrot, which seemed to be lodged somewhere in the upper regions of the obscure stairway. When the clock struck eleven, the bird shrieked out as upon the previous night. "'Dorothy! Dorothy! It is bedtime!' Miss Gear arose, and saying good night, left Ah Ben and Mr. Henley to themselves. "'I am afraid I have been very stupid,' said the old man apologetically. "'Indeed, I must have fallen asleep, as it is my habit to take a nap in the early evening, 
after which I am more wide awake than at any other hour. "'Not at all,' answered Paul. "'I have been enjoying my pipe, and as Miss Gear seemed disposed to be quiet, think I must have been nodding myself.' "'Do you feel disposed to join me in another pipe and a midnight talk?' inquired the host, or are you inclined for bed? Paul was not sleepy, and nothing could have suited him better than to sit over the fire, listening to this strange man, and so he again accepted eagerly. Ah Ben seemed pleased, declaring it was a great treat to have a friend who was as much of an owl as he himself was. And so he added fresh fuel to the dying embers, settled himself in his cozy corner by the fire, while Paul sat opposite. "'Every man must live his own life,' resumed Ah Ben. "'But with my temper the better half would be blotted out, were I deprived of this quiet time for thought and reflection.' "'I quite agree with you,' replied Paul. "'And yet the wisdom of the world is opposed to late hours.' The wisdom of the world is based upon the experience of the worldly prosperous, and what is worldly prosperity but the accumulation of dollars? To be prosperous is one thing, to be happy quite another. I see you are coming back to our old argument. I am sure I could never school myself to the cheerful disregard for money which you seem to have. For my part, I could not do without it, although, to be sure, I sometimes manage on very little. "'Again the wisdom of the world!' exclaimed Ah Ben. "'And what has it done for us?' "'It has taught us to be very comfortable in this latter part of the nineteenth century,' Paul replied. "'Has it?' cried the old man, his eyes fixed full upon Henley's face. I admit, he continued, that it has taught us to rely upon luxuries that eat out the life while pampering the body. It has taught us to depend upon the poison that paralyzes the will, and that personal power we were speaking of. It has done much for man, I grant you, but its efforts have been mainly directed to his destruction. No man can be happy without health, answered Paul. And surely you will admit that the discoveries of the last few decades have done much to improve his physical condition. He was nestling back into the corner of his lounge, where the shadow of the mantelpiece screened his face, and enabled him to look directly into Ah Ben's eyes, now fixed upon him with strange intensity. There was a power behind those eyes that was wont to impress the beholder with a species of interest which he felt might be developed into awe. And yet they were neither large nor handsome, as eyes are generally counted. Deep-set, mounted with withered lids and shaggy brows, their power was due to the manifestation of a spiritual force, a titanic will, that made itself felt, independent of material envelopment. It was the soul looking through the narrow window of mortality, "'Health!' said Ah Ben, repeating Henley's last idea interrogatively, and yet scarcely above a whisper. "'Yes, health,' answered Paul. 
I maintain that the old maxim of early to bed says something on that score, as well as on that of wealth. True, but you said that a man must needs be healthy to be happy. That's it, and I maintain that it's a pretty good assertion. There again we must differ. Happiness should be independent of bodily conditions, whether those conditions mean outward luxury or inward ease. I must again refer you to the prize-fighter. But if you will pardon me, I think you have put the cart before the horse, for once having granted that personal power, happiness must ensue, and your health as a necessity follow. First cultivate this occult force, and we need submit to no physical laws, for inasmuch as the higher controls the lower, we are masters of our own bodies. That is a pretty good description for those who are able to follow it, but for my humble attainments I'd rather depend on physic and a virtuous life. Quite so, answered Aben thoughtfully, but speaking frankly, this limitation of your powers to the chemical action of your body only shows the narrowness of your scientific training. Had men been taught the power of the will as the underlying principle of every effect, one drug would have proved quite as efficacious as another, and bread pills would have met the requirements of the world. But in the state of imbecility in which we happen to find ourselves, added Paul, I should think that a judicious application of the world's wisdom would be better than trifling with theories one does not comprehend. "'As I said just now,' observed Aben, "'I have no desire to force my private views upon another, but I must distinctly object to the word theory as associated with my positive knowledge on this subject. Every man must do as he thinks right, and as suits him best, but for my part I have disregarded all the physical laws of health during an unusually long life." Paul straightened himself up and looked at his host in the hope of a further explanation. "'I don't think I quite understand you.' "'Yes,' said Ah Ben, repeating the sentence slowly and emphasizing the words, "'I disregard all laws usually considered essential to living at all.' Henley was silent for a minute in a vain effort to decide whether or not he were speaking seriously. He could not help remembering his abstinence from food, but at the same time had not doubted the man had eaten between meals. "'Then you certainly ought to know all about it,' he continued, relaxing into his former position, but quite unsettled as to Ah Ben's intention." You must admit that I have had sufficient time to be an authority unto myself, if not to others," added the old man. And then, as he pressed the ashes down into the bowl of his pipe with his long, emaciated fingers, and watched the little threads of smoke as they came curling out from under his thick mustache, Paul could only admit that the gravity of his bearing was inconsistent with the humorous interpretation of his words. "'You interest me greatly,' resumed Henley, after scrutinizing the singular face before him for several minutes in a kind of mesmeric fascination. 
and I should like to ask what you mean by the cultivation of this occult power of which you spoke. It is only to be acquired by the supremest quality of self-control, as I told you yesterday, answered Ah Ben. But when once gained, no man would relinquish it for the gold of a thousand Solomons. You would have proof of what I tell you? Well, some day perhaps you will. Henley started. The man had read his thoughts. It was the very question upon his lips. "'You are a mind-reader,' cried Paul. "'How did you know I was going to ask you that?' Ben made no answer. He did not even smile, but continued to gaze into the fire and blow little puffs of smoke toward the chimney. "'You refer just now to the prize-fighter.' Paul resumed after a few minutes, but I am going to squelch that argument. Yes, Ah Ben replied, now with his eyes half closed. You are going to tell me that, although the man may have been battered and bruised, he really feels no pain because of the unnatural excitement of the moment. But there you only rivet the argument against yourself, for I maintain and not from theory but from knowledge, that that very excitement is an exaltation of the spirit, which may be cultivated and relied upon to conquer pain and the ills of the flesh forever. It would go far indeed if it could do all that, although I believe there is something in what you say, for in a small way I have seen it myself. Yes, we have all seen it in a small way. And does it not seem strange that men have never thought of cultivating it in a larger way, through the exercise of their will in controlling their minds and bodies? This exaltation of spirit is only attained through effort, or some great physical shock. It is the secret of all power. It conquers all pain, and makes disease impossible. Makes disease impossible? cried Paul, in astonishment. "'Yes,' answered the elder man quietly. "'This soul power of which I speak is the hidden Akasa in all men. It is the man himself. And when once recognized, the body is relegated to its proper sphere as the servant and not the master. Then it is that man realizes his own power and supremacy over all things.' "'But,' persisted Henley, "'if you go so far as to say that this occult or soul power can conquer disease, "'you would have us all living forever.' "'We do live forever,' answered Ah Ben. "'Yes, after death, but I mean here.' "'There is no such thing as death,' remarked Ah Ben quietly, as if he were merely giving expression to a well-established scientific fact. "'And yet we see it about us every day,' Paul replied. "'There you are wrong, for no man has ever seen that which never occurs.' "'You are quibbling with words,' suggested Henley. "'There is a change at a certain period in a man's life which, from ignorance, people have agreed to call death. But it is a misnomer, for man never dies. 
he goes right on living, and it is generally a considerable time before he realizes the change that has taken place in him. He would laugh at the word death, as understood upon earth, as indeed he frequently does, for he is far more alive than ever before. "'You speak as if you knew all this,' said Paul. "'One might almost imagine that you had been in the other world yourself.' "'Had been!' exclaimed the old man with emphasis. "'I am in it now, and so are you. But there is a difference between us. I know that I am in it, because I can see it, and touch it, and hear it, while you are in it without knowing it. There was an air of authority that impressed the hearer with the conviction of the speaker. This was not theory. It was the result of experience. There was a difference as vast as the night from the day. "'I suppose when I am dead I shall know these things, too,' said Paul meditatively. "'No,' answered Aben, "'not when you are dead, but when you have been born, when you have come into life.' "'Pardon me,' answered Paul, pondering on the man's strange assertion. "'But this knowledge of yours is in demand more than all other knowledge.' Positive information about the other world is what men have sought through all the ages. Why do you not impart it to them? Impart it? exclaimed Ah Ben. Can you explain to one who has been born blind what it is to see? Can you impart to such a man any true conception of the world in which he has always lived? But couch his eyes, remove the worthless film that has covered them, and for the first time he realizes the glorious world surrounding him. Likewise, couch the body, remove the shell that covers the spirit, and it is born. I perceive, then, that it is only through death that most of us can hope to gain this knowledge. Death, if you prefer the word, said Ah Ben, Yes, it is the death of the film over the eye that reveals the world to the blind, but I should hardly say that the man was dead because he had so entered into another existence. Would you mind telling me how it is that you have gained this knowledge in such obvious exception to the rule? The power of the occult is dormant in all men, answered Aben and as I have already said, may be developed slowly through the exercise of the will, or suddenly, as in some great physical shock, and of a necessity comes to all in the event called death. Were I to tell you how I acquired this knowledge, Mr. Henley, it would startle you, far more than any exhibition of the power itself. No, I cannot tell you, at least not at present. Perhaps some day you may be better prepared to hear it. The spark in the hanging lamp had almost expired, and the fire was reduced to a mere handful of coals, casting an erubescent glow over the pew and its occupants. Ah Ben stretched his hand toward the chimney, and as he did so, a ball of misty light appeared against it, just below the mantel. It was ill-defined and hazy, 
like the reflection a firefly will sometimes make against the ceiling of a darkened room. But it was fixed, and Paul was sure it had not been there a moment before. "'Do you see that?' asked the old man, breaking the silence. "'Yes,' answered Paul, "'and I was just wondering what it could be.' "'Watch, and you will see.' They sat with their eyes fixed, but while Paul was staring into the mantel, Ah Ben was looking at him. "'Observe how it grows,' and even as he spoke the strange illumination deepened until it assumed the distinct and definite form of a lamp. Then the mantelpiece dissolved into nothingness, and Paul was staring through the chimney into a strange room, whose form and contents were dimly revealed by the curious lamp which occupied a table in the center. Two persons sat at this table, the one a woman, the other a boy, and near at hand was an English army officer. The woman was small, with dark eyes and hair, and a skin the color of tan bark. Her head was bowed forward and rested upon her arms, which were crossed upon the table. The man was looking down at her with a troubled expression, and in a minute he stooped forward and kissed the top of her head. He then turned suddenly and left the room. The scene was distinct, although the outer part of the room was in shadow. Presently the woman threw herself to the floor with a heart-rending shriek, and Paul started up, exclaiming, "'What has happened? She will wake everybody in the house!' He bounded to his feet, but as he did so, the lamp in the strange room went out, and the chimney closed over the scene, leaving him with his old surroundings." Looking up at Ah Ben, he said, "'I must have fallen asleep. I've been dreaming.' "'Not at all,' answered Ah Ben. "'You've been quite as wide awake as I have, and we've been looking at the same thing.' Paul demanded the proof, which the old man gave by telling him what he had seen in every detail. "'Then it's magic,' said Henley. For surely no room can be visible through that chimney. That, answered Ah Ben, is mere assertion which you can never prove. Do you mean to tell me that the thing was real? There is a secret about this house which I do not understand. His manner was excited. He felt that he had been the dupe of the man before him, the prey to some clever trick. The thing was too preposterous, too unreasonable. "'Be calm,' said Ah Ben. "'There is nothing in this that should disturb you. The room has disappeared from our sight, and will no more trouble us. Shall we have another pipe?' The words had an instantaneous effect, so that Paul resumed his seat and pipe, as if nothing had happened. For several minutes he sat silently gazing at vacancy and listening to the north wind as it moaned through the old pines. He was trying to account for what he had seen, but could not. The mystery was deepening into an overpowering gloom. The house with its eccentric inmates, 
the girl Dorothy, with her freaks and manner of living, the odd circumstance of the stairway in his closet. These and other things flashed upon his memory in a confused jumble, and seemed as inexplicable as the vision just witnessed through the chimney. Suddenly a thought struck him. Could this last have been hypnotism? He put the question straight to Ah Ben. The man passed his withered hand over his face thoughtfully as he answered, "'Hypnotism, Mr. Henley, is a name that is used in the West for a condition that has been known in the East for thousands of years as the underlying principle of all phenomena.' "'And what is that condition?' Paul inquired. "'Sympathetic vibration,' answered the elder man. "'Vibration of what?' asked Paul. "'Of the mind,' said Ah Ben. "'The condition of the universal mind vibrating in our material plane, or within the range of our physical senses, is represented in the trees and the rocks, in the earth and the stars. Our physical senses, being attuned to his form of vibration, are in sympathy with it and apprehend all its phenomena.' There is but one mind of which man is a part. Thought is a product of mind. Thought is real, and when sufficiently concentrated, becomes tangible and visible to those who can be brought into sympathy with its vibrations. There is but one primal substance, which is mind. Mind creates all things out of itself. Therefore, to change the world we look at, it is only necessary to change our minds. "'Let me ask if what I saw was hypnotism,' repeated Henley. "'I ask this first because I know it is impossible to see through a brick wall, even if there should be such a room in the house, and secondly because I cannot believe that I was dreaming, consequently the thing could not have been real.' "'Hypnotism is a good enough word,' answered Ben, "'but that which men generally understand by the real, "'and that which they consider the unreal, "'are not so far apart as they suppose. "'You say the room was not real, and yet you saw it. "'Had you wished, you might have touched it, "'which is certainly all the evidence you have "'of the existence of the room in which we are now sitting.' Hypnotism is not a cause of hallucination, as is commonly supposed, but of fact. Its effects are not illusory, but real. Perhaps it would be more correct to say that they are as real as anything else, and that all the phenomena of nature are mere illusions of the senses, which they undoubtedly are. But whichever side we take, all appearances are the result of the same general cause, that of mental vibration. Matter has no real existence. Paul was meditating on what he had seen and what he was now hearing. Ah Ben's words were endowed with an added force by the vision of the mysterious room. When you tell me that there is practically no difference between the real and the unreal, and that matter has no real existence, I must confess to some perplexity. "'observed Henley. 
Ah Ben looked up and smoothed the furrows in his withered cheek thoughtfully for a minute before he answered. Unfortunately, Mr. Henley, language is not absolute or final in its power to convey thought, and the best we can do is to use it as carefully as possible to express ourselves, which we can only hope to do approximately. Therefore, when I say that a thing is hot or cold, or hard or soft, I only mean that it is so by comparison with certain other things. And when I say that matter has no existence, I mean that it has no independent existence, no existence outside of the mind that brought it into being. I mean that it was formed by mind, formed out of mind, and that it continues to exist in mind as part of mind. I mean that it is an appearance objective to our point of consciousness on the material plane. But inasmuch as it was formed by thought, it can be reformed by thought, which could never be if it existed independently of thought. It is real in the sense of apparent objectivity, and not real in the sense of independent objectivity, and yet it affects us in precisely the same manner as if it were independent of thought. What, then, is the difference between matter as viewed from the idealist's or the materialist's point of view? At first there is apparently none, but a deeper insight will show us that the difference is vast and radical, for in the one case the tree or the chair that I am looking at, owing its very existence to mind, is governed by mind, which could never be did they exist as separate and distinct entities. Therefore I say with perfect truth that matter does not exist in the one sense, and yet that it does exist in the other. I dream of a green field, a beautiful landscape never before beheld. I awake, and it is gone. Where was that enchanting scene? I can tell you, for it was in the mind, where everything else is. But upon waking I have changed my mind, and the scene has vanished. Thus it is with the adept of the East, with the yogis, the pundit, the rishis, and the common fakir. Through the power of hypnotism they alter the condition of the subject's mind, and with it his world has likewise undergone a change. You say this is not real, that it is merely illusion. But in reply, I would say that these illusions have been subjected to the severest tests. Their reality has been certified to be every human sense, and when an illusion responds to the sense of both sight and touch, when the sense of sight is corroborated by that of touch, or by any other of the five senses, what better evidence have we of the existence of those things we are all agreed to call real? Yes, I know what you are about to say. You object upon the ground that only a small minority are witnesses of the marvels of Eastern magic. But you are wrong, for I have seen hundreds of men in a public square, all eyewitnesses to precisely the same occult phenomena at once. Now, if certain hundreds could be so impressed, why not other hundreds? 
and with a still more powerful hypnotizer, why could not a majority, nay, all of those in a certain district, a certain state, a certain country, in the world, be made to see and feel things which now, and to us, have no existence? In that case, Mr. Henley, would it be the majority or the minority who were deceived? All is mind, and the hypnotizer merely alters it. You said just now, answered Paul, that matter, being mind, was governed by mind, and that the tree or chair before me, owing its existence to mind, is subject to that mind. Do you mean by that to say that the existence of that sofa, as a sofa, may be transformed into something else by mental action alone? I do, said Aben, under certain conditions, namely the condition called hypnotism. On this material plane we are imprisoned. The will is not free to operate upon its environment, but in the spiritual state this dependence and slavery to the appearances we call realities is cast aside. The will becomes free and controls its own environment. In short, we are out of prison. But even here, Mr. Henley, by practicing the self-control we were speaking of, the will becomes so powerful that it can sometimes break through the bondage of matter, which, after all, is no more real than the stuff a dream is made of, and mold its prison walls into any form it chooses, in which case, of course, it is no longer a prison, and the other world is achieved without the change called death. And why do you call it a prison, if no more real than a dream? Have you ever had the nightmare? If so, you must know that your will was insufficient to free you from the horrid scene that had taken such forcible hold of you. Was the nightmare real or not? Paul was silent for several minutes. He could not deny the reality of the scene through the chimney, for it had the same forceful existence to him as anything in life. Ah Ben, seeing that he was still puzzling himself over the problem of mind and matter, the puzzle of life, the great sphinx riddle of the ages, said, Let me ask you a question, Mr. Henley. I might say several questions, which may possibly tend to throw a little light upon this subject, and perhaps convince you that matter is really mind. Ask as many as you like. Pantheism, continued Aben, is scoffed at by many people calling themselves Christians as being idolatrous, and yet to me it is the most ennobling of all creeds. Without knowing anything of your religious faith, I would first ask if you believe in God. Paul answered affirmatively. Do you look upon him as a personal deity? I mean as an exaggerated man in size and power, or as a spirit. As a spirit, Paul replied. Very well, then. Do you believe that spirit is infinite or finite? Infinite. Then if it is infinite, 
there can be no part of space in which it does not exist. That is my idea also. If, then, that spirit exists everywhere, it must penetrate all matter. In fact, all matter must, in its very essence, be a part of it. It must be formed out of the very substance of this infinite spirit or mind. Hence, all is mind. That seems clear enough, said Paul, in which case it seems to me that we are a part of God ourselves, and God being spirit, we must be spirits now. Of course we are, answered Aben. As I have already told you, we are in the spiritual world now, although much of it is screened from our view, because we are temporarily imprisoned in a lower vibratory plane called matter. Aben arose, and procuring candles, which he lighted by the expiring fire, the men went to their beds. End of chapter 5 Recording by Roger Moline